to Psalm 9. As we approach the psalm, uh, since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? To the choir master, according to Muth Laben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice. In your salvation, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, before we walk through this psalm in detail, I want to just, now that we've read it, give you the big picture of Psalm 9. Give you the worldview of Psalm 9. On the earth, you have two groups of people. You have the anointed king of God's people with God's holy nation and they are in the right, yet they are being afflicted. When bad things happen to good people, okay? God's people, God's anointed, they're in the right, and they are being afflicted. Then on the other hand, you have another group of people. 
the wicked nations who are afflicting God's people, and they're getting away with it. They're in the wrong, and they're winning. Both are injustices. People who are in the right are being treated wrongly, and that's not just. People who are in the wrong are succeeding, and that's not just. Both are injustices, and both seem to be continuing unchecked. And this is not just the world of the psalmist, is it? It's our world today. We see the innocent being oppressed. Think no further than an issue that's particularly on the top of mind lately, and that's the issue of abortion. Innocent people being oppressed. It's not just, and it just keeps happening. How long, O Lord? But then you also have wicked people who are seemingly succeeding, going unchecked, getting more power, succeeding in the world. We see this world of Psalm 9 in our own day. Righteous, being afflicted, wicked, succeeding, injustice. That's the world that David looks out on. That's the world that the people of God in his day are living in. But there is more to the picture than just what is happening on the earth. Because even as David looks out on injustice in the world, he looks up to the throne of heaven. And seated on the throne is a just God. This injustice that we see in Psalm 9, this is our world. But that God who is just and on the throne, this is our God. And David is finding hope, even in the midst of injustice, in the fact that God is just and God is on the throne. And David writes Psalm 9, this song, in such a way that he leads God's people to have hope. He leads them to sing this song. He puts it in their mouth so that they might direct their hope to the God of justice, who is the God of on the throne. David leads God's people to have hope because of the justice of God, trusting that the afflictors will be repaid and the afflicted will be remembered. Because God, as he reveals himself in Psalm 9, reveals himself as the avenger of the afflicted, the avenger of the afflicted. That's the big picture. Let's walk through Psalm 9 in detail now and see this unfold in a variety of ways. Uh, we're going to see uh, Psalm 9 basically can be divided into two sections. The first 12 verses that begin and end with praise for justice. And then the second half, verses 13 through 20, which begin and end with a prayer for justice. So praise for justice in verses 1 through 12 and a prayer for justice in verses 13 through 20. First, let's begin by looking at David's praise for justice in verses 1 through 12. In, uh, in verses 1 through 2, David begins this whole psalm with thanks and praise. Look at those verses again. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. 
I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, it's important that we see this praise and thanks in its context within this psalm. Because David is praising God for deliverance. He is thanking God for what he has already done. And he's praising as if God has already accomplished justice. He's praising for the already, the deliverance that has already happened. But in the context of the psalm, what we see is that he's also asking for deliverance from affliction. He's asking for deliverance that has yet to come. If you look at verse 13, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction. So he's still in this present affliction. And and the reason why that's so important for seeing his praise and thanks in verses 1 and 2 properly is that he didn't wait until everything was perfect to praise God. He didn't wait until all of the affliction stopped before he gave thanks to God. He was praising God in his affliction. He was praising God in hope because he has already seen that God is just and does deliver his anointed out of affliction. And so in his present affliction, he is counting on the fact that this God will be just again and he will act in justice again in his time, in his present affliction, what does he do? He praises God with everything, his whole heart, everything in him. And, and, and notice something. As you look at verse 2 especially, notice that phrase, in you. I will be glad and exult in you. David is not primarily glad about deliverance itself. He is glad in God. David is not so much praising salvation as he is praising the Savior. He is praising God himself, finding joy and hope in God himself, this just God. He praises this God in faith, and he writes this song, and then he gives it to the people of God and puts it in their songbook so that they can have this praise on their mouth in their affliction. So they can have the thanks of God on their mouths in their suffering. As we praise our Savior, we look back to fuel our praise in the present. We look back on God's deliverance Not only to fuel our praise in the present, but to fuel our hope for the future. At the cross, God has accomplished salvation for sinners. He has delivered us. And so in our suffering, in our present affliction, we can have hope as we look back on God's faithfulness. Seeing that he has proved he will come through. He will make all things right. He will deliver. And so we can have hope in our suffering, in our affliction. If God has been faithful in the past, we can count on him to make everything right in the future. And in the waiting, we praise our Savior. We praise our just God for his wonderful deeds. Well, what wonderful deed was top of mind for David? Uh, Look at verses 3 and 4, and we'll see that 
God's justice toward David's enemies is primarily his focus. David says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. When Yahweh shows up, the enemy retreats. The enemy is defeated. The enemy perishes because the just God is on his throne. Notice that the reason why David can hope in God's justice is because he says his cause is righteous. So when a just God is sitting on the throne of heaven and he looks down on the earth and he sees David and he's in the right and then he sees enemies opposing David who is in the right, God in his justice defeats the enemies who are opposing the righteous. David's victory and his enemy's defeat both stem from the verdict coming from the throne of the righteous God. If we live for the cause of the anointed, the cause of Christ, we will be opposed. And it may look at times like we are losing or we have lost, but God will maintain the just cause of his Christ. Christ's people can hope because of God's justice. Well, then in verses 5 and 6, David describes a particular way that Yahweh responds to the wicked, how he responds to his wicked enemies. He says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. David has in view here final defeat. Total annihilation. Uh, He uses the word perish about his enemies. Like if you glance back at Psalm 2 in verse 12, David wrote, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Those who oppose the Son of God, the anointed, the Christ, will perish eternally. Uh, Look again at this language here. Blotted out forever, everlasting ruins. No no one even remembers these enemies. David has hope in God's final justice, his eternal justice, a justice that he will accomplish on the last day. His enemies, the enemies of God's people, may reign for a time. For what even feels like a long time. But in the light of eternity, as Psalm 1-4 says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. But then, in verses 7 and 8, in contrast to the fleeting nations forgotten eternally, he says this in verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So the name of the wicked is going to be blotted out forever, but Yahweh is on the throne 
forever. However long unrighteousness may last on the earth, it will never outlast the justice of God. When unrighteous people perish and stumble and fall and fade away like chaff, God will still be on the throne reigning eternally. Of course, we won't see this judgment in full until the day that Jesus returns. Uh, Flip over with me to Acts chapter 17. In words that sound an awful lot like Psalm 9 and verse 8, Paul says this, Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's ultimate anointed king, the son of David, Jesus Christ, was afflicted. Afflicted all the way to death. But God raised him up. And he exalted him to the throne as the one who will judge the living and the dead. And on the last day, the afflicted one will be the avenger. He will be the judge who judges the world in righteousness. The hope of God's people in David's day and the hope of God's people today is in the justice of God. The final judgment of God when he makes all things right. And if we are right before God, we can hope because of God's justice. We may be afflicted for a time, but we will be vindicated eternally because the righteous God will judge the world justly. But of course, that raises the question, how can we be right before God? How can God's justice be good news and not bad news? Well, we can be right before God if we find refuge in him. In verses 9 and 10, what we see is that God's justice is seen not only in punishing the wicked, but also in how he defends the oppressed. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Yahweh is a fortress for his people. He is a fortress for the oppressed when they are attacked by wicked enemies. But what does it look like to make Yahweh your fortress? What is it that, how is it that they can say Yahweh is their fortress? Well, look at verse 10, and I want you to notice three words. The word know, the word trust, and the word seek. To make Yahweh your fortress, what does it look like? Know him. Trust him. Seek him. First, we have to know him. You can't run to a shelter that you don't know exists. Uh, You have to know this God, know who he is, know his character, his justice, his love, his mercy, his holiness. Know his heart, his faithfulness to his people. 
know his ways, uh, know what he has done to save sinners. The fact that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate anointed king to die and bear the punishment, the wrath of God that sinners deserved and rise again conquering death in order to offer forgiveness of sins for all who trust in him. In order to make wicked people righteous if they trust in the righteousness of Jesus. We need to know that this is what God has done. This is who God is. Uh, But it's not enough just to know those things. Second, we have to trust. Not just know, but trust. Believe He is able to save. Those who know His name, trust in Him. Believe that He's able to save. Believe that He will act in justice. Not that just that it's a fact that there is this God, but trust that He will act in justice. But then third, seek Him. Because it's not just enough to know that there is this God. It's not even enough to sincerely agree that this God is real or sincerely believe that He is able to save. No, we must rely on Him. We must rely on Him. We must run to Him for refuge. This God who is just, who is able to save, who will act in justice. We must run to Him for refuge. And if we are to seek Him, if we are to run to this God for refuge, that means that as we run in the direction of this God, we all must necessarily run away from some things too. We must run away from false sources of refuge, things that are not a faithful fortress. We need to run away from trying to find refuge in our own righteousness, as if we can have a right cause before God in and of ourselves, as if we can justify ourselves before God. That is a false refuge. We must run away from that and run to the God who offers his righteousness in Christ. Uh, We must if we're going to run to God for refuge, run away from the sin that God will condemn in righteousness. We must run away from the sin that God wants to save us from. He wants to give us protection from. We run to Him for refuge as we run away from these other things. And as we run into Him and find safety, we find a righteousness that was earned by Christ, not of our own. May we seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing, as verse 10 says, he will never forsake those who seek him. He will never forsake those who run to him for eternal refuge in his righteousness. Jesus says, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is hope. This is hope for those who seek Yahweh and find him as their stronghold. And this is all cause for praise. And so David concludes this first section of Psalm 9 in verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry 
of the afflicted. David calls God's people to sing the praises of the God of justice who reigns on the throne and offers himself as a fortress and stronghold for those who are oppressed. But this praise that David calls for is to extend beyond the borders of Israel. He says, tell among the peoples his deeds, the nations. And what deeds is he saying that they should declare to the peoples that Yahweh is the avenger of the afflicted? That God hears the cries of his afflicted people and he will not let crimes against his people go unpunished. Well, why do the nations need to know this? Why, why did they need to know this in David's day? Why do the nations in our day need to know that God is the avenger of the afflicted? Well, first of all, this is a warning. Anyone who opposes God's people will be opposed by God. Anyone who opposes God's people will be opposed by God. This is a promise God made to Abraham. I will curse those who curse you. And ultimately that is fulfilled in Abraham's offspring, Christ. God will oppose all people who oppose his people. Remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus when Saul was persecuting his people? He said, why are you persecuting Anyone who opposes God's people opposes God and will therefore be opposed by God. You cannot love God and hate his people. So the nations need to be warned. God is the avenger of the afflicted. But second, the nations need to know this because this is an invitation. In Christ, God has made a way for wicked afflictors to find a fortress in Yahweh. Again, Psalm 2 and verse 12, it starts, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but it concludes, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Because of what the anointed king accomplished in his death and resurrection, the afflictors, the enemies, the wicked nations are invited to come and find eternal refuge if they lay down their weapons and trust in Yahweh for salvation. And so may we not only praise God for his salvation in this assembly, but may we declare the praises of this Savior to the nations who need to hear this message as David calls for. Well, so again, in verses 1 through 12, David has this praise for justice, this praise to the just God, and then he concludes the psalm in verses 13 through 20 with a prayer for justice. Having declared who God is, who this just God is, now David asks God to act in justice. In verses 13 and 14, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So David asks God 
to show him favor. He says, see, see my affliction. And of course, he, he doesn't just mean look at it and know about it. He means look at it and do something about it. See my affliction and, and deliver me. He's asking God to act in accord with the character that he has already praised God for. He, he calls Yahweh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. This is who Yahweh is to David. As he is being threatened, as, as he is being, his very life is being threatened, he looks to Yahweh who is able to deliver from death. Of course, in David's day, what it meant for his God to be the one who would lift him up from the gates of death, uh, David was praying to avoid death, <laughs> keep me from being killed by my enemies. But of course, the ultimate anointed king, the son of David, Jesus, for him, this means resurrection from the dead. And this is the salvation that we long for as the people of the Christ. It's the salvation we long for on that last day. As we long for the last day, we live under constant threat of death. But on that day, not only will Jesus judge the living and the dead, all who trust in him, he will raise up never to die again. And notice also in these verses, particularly in verse 14, what was the purpose David had in asking for salvation? That he may praise. He wants to be rescued from the gates of death so he can praise God inside the gates of Jerusalem. And this is why you and I are saved. If Jesus has saved us from our sins, if he has delivered us from hell, if he will raise us up on the last day, we are saved to praise our Savior. Then in verses 15 and 16, David reflects on one of the ways God judges his enemies, even as he is requesting God to see his affliction that he might praise him. He reflects on one of the ways that God judges his enemies, one of the ways he may take him and free him from his affliction. Look at verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, and the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. So David envisions this pit that his enemies have made to trap him in. He envisions this net that has been laid by his enemies in order to trap him. But his enemies fell in the trap that they laid for David. Their attempts to capture God's anointed backfired on themselves. But even this self-sabotage of David's enemies was ultimately the sovereign judgment of God. On David's enemies. God has made himself known in this judgment of them receiving back on themselves what they had planned for David. Now, I haven't read out loud these words uh, at the end of verse 16. Higeon, Salah, or Selah if you prefer. Uh, now we've talked a little bit about the word Salah. Uh, a Hebrew word that comes up multiple times in the Psalms, and it, 
it's a bit of a mysterious word. Um, it's not totally clear what the definition of the word is, and it kind of seems to function different ways in different psalms. Uh, but this word uh, hegeon, which it's paired with here, uh, actually comes up in other places where it's a little bit more clear. Uh, and hegeon has the sense of meditate. So right here is an instruction within the psalm to meditate. Well, why? Why should those singing Psalm 9 pause here and meditate? Why on, on this point about the wicked being snared in the work of their own hands? Why would the congregation singing Psalm 9 pause and meditate here? Well, let me offer a couple of suggestions. First, God's people can meditate on the hope of God's judgment. Even in their affliction, the people of God can sing Psalm 9, hear that God will judge the wicked by causing them to be snared in the work of their own hands, and they can have hope. Even as they see their enemies scheming against them, they can have hope that those schemes will not prosper. When we as God's people feel afflicted, we can remember that ultimately every weapon formed against us will not prosper. But then there's a second aspect of why I think it would be important for the congregation to meditate on this truth. And that this, this serves as a warning to those within the congregation who would oppose God's anointed. Now, you may think, well, Primarily, this is the congregation is the righteous, and it's the nations outside of this congregation that are wicked. They're the ones who are opposing. But David's life story would uh, indicate that the enemies are not always outside the gates. Sometimes the enemy is already in the house. Think, for instance, of David's son Absalom. In fact, uh, there are some who would understand Psalm 9 to be written on the occasion of Absalom's death as a praise for God for defeating uh, his enemy, Absalom, his own son. There were those within the congregation in David's day who would be tempted to oppose God's anointed. What is it then that defines someone who is opposed to God's anointed? Well, look at verse 13 and see the way that David says, the way, that, the way that he describes the wicked is as those who hate me. Wickedness is simply just hating the Christ. Now, in this congregation, if I say this is a warning to those who hate the Christ, I would imagine everyone in the room would say, well, not a warning to me. I don't hate, I don't hate Jesus. I'm literally at church right now. But look with me, flip over to with me at John chapter 7 and verse 7. John 7, verse 7, Jesus says this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What sparks hate 
for Christ? Jesus saying, don't do that. Jesus saying, that's evil. All hating Christ involves is this. I want to do what I want to do. Jesus says I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's it. It's not about a feeling. It's not about a position. It's do I submit to Jesus as Lord? Or do I stand against him when he says what I am doing is evil? I know Jesus says lust is equivalent to adultery. I'm just going to kind of let my eyes wander anyway. I'm not going to take it that seriously. I know Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, but I think my hatred toward my enemies is justified. I know Jesus says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but I'm busy. Simply opposing what Jesus says and just doing whatever I want to do is a hatred of the Christ. Just ignoring his word, saying, I'm, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, that's what it is. And so, may we be warned that when we think, I'll just do what's right in my own eyes, that will fail. That will come back to bite us. In Matthew 7, those who hear Jesus' words and do not do them are like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. It falls and great is the fall of it. Well, as David continues to consider God's justice towards his enemies in verses 17 and 18, David considers how God's justice against his enemies relates to his justice toward his needy people. Look at verses 17 and 18. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So first he says uh, that the wicked will return to Sheol. Sheol is the the place of the dead. The, The wicked will die. That's what he is saying. In verse 13, David described Yahweh as the one who lifted him up from death, but those who dishonor God will die at the hand of God. Uh, The enemies forget God, but in verse 6 we saw that they themselves will be forgotten, and God's needy people here will not be forgotten. The hope of God's people is eternal. We have an eternal hope in our righteous God. And notice that word for, and see the relationship between these ideas that the wicked who forget God will die and the needy will not always be forgotten. God remembers the needy who trust in him. He is faithful to his people. Therefore, he will judge those who afflict his needy people. Because God has set his steadfast love on his people and will not forsake them, because the needy will not be forgotten, because he will remember the hope of the poor, because they will not, their hope will not perish forever, therefore, all those who afflict his needy people will perish. All who afflict his people. 
Well, then David concludes in 19 and 20, in light of this future hope of God's people, in light of their future protection, in light of the future judgment against their enemies, David ends this song with one final petition in verses 19 and 20. He says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So David asks Yahweh to act. These humans were afflicting people who had God on their side. So David asks God to put these people in their place, put these human nations in their place. These nations need to realize who they are. They're creatures going against the Creator. They should be terrified. And so David asks God to put in them the fear of God that any human who opposes God should have in them. The hope of the people of Christ is that God will arise and his enemies will be scattered. The hope of the people of the Christ is that God will let the nations know he is God and they are not. And even in the waiting, in the affliction, in the brokenness of this world, in the suffering, in the opposition, we as the people of Christ can have hope in our just God, knowing one day all will be made right. Turn with me one final place, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now, tomorrow, the next day, when I get tired of it, no. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. This is the day that is coming. And because we know it is coming, we can have hope today. 
we might be afflicted today. We might be afflicted tomorrow. We might be afflicted for years to come. But that day is coming. The afflictors will be repaid. And the afflicted will be remembered. And we will marvel at our God as we give thanks and praise to the righteous judge. So when it seems that the wicked are getting away with it, when we're opposed for following Christ, when we meet resistance that even causes us to question if we're in the right, remember, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He will right every wrong. And so in the waiting, we worship. In the waiting, we give praise and thanks to our righteous God who will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, you are on the throne. And so we have hope. Lord, we don't have to lose sleep over injustice. We don't have to lose sleep over the wicked prospering. We don't have to lose sleep over the poor and needy being afflicted. Because you are a just God. You have proven your justice in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you will work your final justice when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Lord, as we long for that day, increase our hope now. As we look forward with confidence to your final justice, Lord, give us hope. Even as we weep over the wickedness that we see around us. And Lord, even in our own sinful nature. As we walk forward in this broken world, may we walk with our eyes fixed on Jesus, our soon coming King. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.